0: what's up everybody welcome back to another episode of sermons in cars i am one of your hosts my name is tony i am super excited to continue uh, this dialogue today this is part two of the topic what must i do to be saved uh, if you haven't seen the first episode Uh, or the the part one, check that one out, because it really does lead us in and set up this dialogue today pretty well, but I'll give you a quick recap. In church world, we're always being told that you gotta believe in Jesus in order to be saved. And then people will be like, well, Jesus came around and he was like, repent and believe, repent and believe. The problem is, what does that even mean? My thing is that if we don't have a baseline that starts with christ we'll kind of take certain phrases and build systems of thought around them which is kind of what's happened in christendom over the last oh i don't know say 1500 years not that the last 1500 years is all wrong but there has been a great deal of malformation that has taken place as a result of Poor interpretations that kind of just snowball into this um, stone edifice that gets set up in our in our church um, system. So my thing is that we've got to operate. We have to always take it back to how did Christ view the question, specifically if we're going to really build systems of thought around it. So to the to the point. What must I do to be saved? So Luke chapter 10, an expert of the law stands up to test Jesus and asks him the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the ultimate question. It's the ultimate question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's a bazillion different ways you can slice this and go at it and argue it and dissect it and tear it apart, right? But Jesus just says, well, What does the law say? How do you read it? So he says, believe in the in the Lord with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. Right. This is a principle, an Old Testament principle that goes back thousands of years. Fundamental to their faith. Believe in the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, very simply, do this and you will live. Do this, you will have your eternal life, your zoe, you will have it. But the expert wanted to justify himself, and so he asked the question, well, who is my neighbor? See, Paul develops the concept, I think it's Paul, don't get mad at me if I'm wrong, but he develops the concept a little more. Um, when people are like, well, we believe in the Lord. And he's like, how can you believe? You you cannot believe in the Lord whom you cannot see if you do not love your neighbor whom you can see. Might have been James, actually. So proof that you love God is actually fleshed out in how you love people. And this is key to experiencing eternal life. It's fascinating to me Jesus doesn't say, get on your knees and worship me. Repent of all of the things you've done, turn from those wicked ways, and believe in me. No, he doesn't do that. Actually, so the key to all of this is how we live in relation to other people. And in doing so, we can flesh out our love for the unseen being we call God. So this expert wants to justify himself, and he's like, well, so who's my neighbor, right? Is it the person right next door to me in my neighborhood? Is it the person uh, at the grocery store that I'm kind of waiting, who's taking forever in line? Is it the, you know, who is it? Because if I know that my neighbors represent group A, then it allows me the freedom to hate everybody in group B. Jesus knows this. He knows the heart of us when we're asking questions like that. And he says, in response, this beautiful story. Because a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, falls into the hands of robbers who beat him, strip him of his clothes, leave him half dead on the side of the road. And a priest comes along sees the person in need, and we're all like, yeah, the priest does it. Jesus is like, and he goes to the other side of the road and avoids him. So now this story kind of takes a serious turn. And he says, I know a Levite comes along and sees him. but The Levite goes to the other side of the road and avoids him. Now, contextually, obviously, we can we know what a priest is, right? Or a pastor, right? So if you're a pastor out there, obviously I'm not talking to you, right? I used to be a pastor. I got one finger pointed at you. There's three pointing back at me, right? Totally not me, of course. But now this, this second one is funny because a Levite, he calls in a Levite. A Levite would have been, if we were to put it in modern day context, a Levite is really the worship leader. In simple terms. So for all us worship leaders, so now I got two fingers pointed out at everybody out there, and there's six pointed back at me. Because I was a worship pastor and have been for about ten years. So for all of us people who love to stand up there and sing about, oh praise Jesus, he's like, Yeah, you guys, listen up. The Levite crosses the street avoids the person and goes on his merry way, goes on her merry way. But then a Samaritan comes along and the Samaritan sees the person, takes pity, stops, dresses their wounds, puts them on their donkey, takes them to an inn, takes care of them, in the morning comes down, gives the attendant two denarii and says, look after him until I return. And if any additional expenses are incurred, I will reimburse you. Jesus says to the expert, who do you think in this story exemplifies love of neighbor? The expert says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Just to say, that's the key to your eternal life. Now, what happens in this story is that he addresses very point-blank some systemic issues happening in first century Palestine. And and the first one is he, he calls out the racism that was so prevalent in that age. By making the Samaritan the hero of the story, now it's important to know that the Samaritans were hated by Jews. They hated him. They they believed that they were uh, uh, half-bloods. And I want to put that into modern-day context, right? Because the Jew at that time had such enmity towards a Samaritan. It's like this. A Samaritan in modern-day context would probably be somebody who identifies with the LGBTQ plus community and works at Planned Parenthood and also goes to church. That probably is a modern day representation of a Good Samaritan in context. Meaning, in our world today you've spent any time in the evangel- Evangelical Church, you have an opinion on the LGBTQ plus community. And if you've been raised in any highly conservative environments, or maybe what I would refer to as infernalist environments, environments that propagate the idea that if you don't do X, you cannot receive Y. If you don't act like X, you cannot do Y. If you do not identify with group A, you are free to hate everybody in group B. Side note, if you do identify in the beautiful communities of the LGBTQ+, I would love to hear your opinions on this. I am a, uh, I would say I'm a reformed uh, uh, conservative. (laughs) I'm reformed now in the sense that I have repented of the error of my ways and I wanna know what it's like to be be open-handed, to be a learner of every single human. And I wanna stay in this posture the rest of my life. Because I had drifted into the territory of being an expert in the law. I had drifted into the territory of standing up and, and subconsciously justifying myself. Thankfully I'm I'm through <laughs> some some hard hard experiences I'm uh, I I'm in a place now where I want to be open. Anyway, that said the story puts into perspective the question of who is your neighbor. And at the end of the day, I think Jesus is saying to us, it doesn't, it, everybody is your neighbor, son, daughter. We we are all neighbors. We're all brothers and sisters. So if you want to stand up and propagate a particular mindset, a particular way of life, and 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 solely live so that you can maintain your hold on group A so that you can justify your positions against group B. Well, that is anything but Christ-like. And it's what Christ is trying to show us. So the question about what must I do to be saved isn't about sitting in church raising your hand. It's not about saying, bah, when the sheep, when the pastor says, something and all the sheep nod and bah no offense to the sheeples I used to be a sheeple it's not about doing all of the right things it's about learning to live in such a way that you recognize everybody is your brother everybody is your sister and it is our responsibility to love that. the love that covers over a multitude of wrongs the love That wins people into the arms of Christ. Not the love that points the finger, not the love that justifies ourselves, not the love that you go down the list. So for me, when I embrace the dialogue and the question, what must I do to be saved? And I hear people say, repent and believe in the lord jesus i cross reference that with how christ lived that question and i hold that dear to my heart so when when we hear paul say those words it has to do with how you're going to take care of people how you're going to love people how you're going to live differently now are you a part of a system that propagates hate well maybe now you need to step away from that system job, one that, that just isn't incompatible in your spirit with the system of the kingdom of heaven. I mean, I, I we risk creating absolutes in, in these situations. There is no absolute for you, except that you learn how to love people. And in doing so, you can begin to experience God. Well, I hope this has been um eventful for you i am at work now so i'm gonna get off but uh yeah sermons in cars more to come i think the next upcoming episode is going to be titled what the hell because i just can't take the infernalist position anymore we must discuss to the channel. Would you share your opinions, your thoughts below in the comment section? I love to hear them, especially if you disagree with me. Yeah, this is Sermons in Cars, guys.